Welcome to the South Fellowship Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. And wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Welcome, friends. How are you? If you're visiting, it's pretty good. Uh, if you're visiting, my name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to have you with us today. As, oh, it's back. Wow, it's just... Jumping all over the place. Uh, welcome to our vision series, Just Another Church. We are a community that is just one of many churches. We get to participate in this big story that is the worldwide church. And yet we are also called to, to be faithful to what God has called this community uh, to be. Uh, the writer Andy Stanley says this vision is about what could be and should be. It's supposed to resonate somewhere in there. It's a longing that is, oh, could we please have this. I'd love to see the world look like this, but, but it's also a, a challenge. In some ways, it's like travel. You picture the beautiful beach, you picture where you're going, and then you have to do the hard work of getting on a plane and, and the annoying kids, and they're probably my kids that were on that plane with you and just experience all of that. It's, it's like a building project. A, a while ago, I decided to put a hole in my shed. I just cut a big gap to put some doors in. Uh, but I'm not like a big building person. I, it's, it's not my skill set. Uh, and so there's these moments where the hole just sat there for maybe a month and a half. And, and I had this moment of like, what have I done to my shed? At one point, it was watertight. And it was all of those things that a shed should be. And now it's this place that needs doors. And I finally got them in. But, but juggling the doors around again, I, I'm, it's not my skill set. But, but we got the doors in. And, and then they wouldn't shut. And then I had to move them. And all of these different things. And, and you have these moments like, why did I start down this journey? Chasing after something worthwhile can have all of those things, all of those questions. Maybe we ask these questions before we get into something. Will it be worth the work? Or, or maybe will it be worth the wait? Anytime you think about the opportunity to do something new, to have something either as an individual, as a family, as a community, you maybe ask some of those Questions. And so as we enter into this season, it will be hard work at times. And last week we talked about our first pathway as environments that feel like coming home. Incredibly, the God of the universe is a welcoming God. When we look at the stories and how Jesus tried to articulate the big picture of the kingdom of God, one of his favorite images was the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is a party. It's a celebration, it's a gathering in, it's ostentatious, it's deeply welcoming. And so it's environments that feel like coming home. What does it look like for South to be a place that says, yes, we are glad that people are here? Whether it's for the first time or for the 150th, 200,000th time to be that community that celebrates the fact that God called us together in this season, that welcomes those that may not get a welcome anywhere else. But then there's a movement from this one uh, to the second one. And the second one is experiences that help people encounter Jesus and take next steps. Experiences that help people encounter Jesus and take next steps. And this reflects on this idea that there's some things that we can control 
We get to do what many of you do all through the week. We get to design experiences. We get to plan a Sunday morning service. We get to operate the food bank and welcome people in. We get to run small groups. We get to run classes. We get to participate in the world in all of the ways you might, might participate in it. But then there's this other thing that I think is central and that we long for. We long for people to encounter Jesus and then take a next step with him. And the, the, the connection between the two is a challenge. A few years ago, I did something that I, I kind of regretted instant, instantly. I walked into a CrossFit gym. I don't know how many of you have ever done this, but as you can tell, this isn't particularly like a world that, that I'm super comfortable in. I, I got there and I arrived and it felt like the coach was my best friend. So he really welcomed me in and he made me coffee and we sat on his couch and he talked to me about just the gym and he, he started to ask me questions that felt a little rhetorical. Uh, he would say things like, wouldn't your life be better if you were in better shape? And I was like, I guess. <laughs> and he said, wouldn't your life be better if you ate better? And I said, I don't know, I guess, but it seems like you want me to say yes for the purpose of this conversation. And so it felt like we'd made this connection and it was an environment that felt like home in that respect. And then, then he turned the corner with me and he, was, he said to me, so you bring your gym shorts with you? Why don't, why don't, we, why don't we work out? And I was like, can we just stay and drink coffee for a while? I mean, it's just, it's just not something I love doing. Someone said to me the other day, how much do you bench press? And I said, I don't. <laughs> um, and so he said, let's go. And we went out into the gym floor and he started telling me to do all of these things like push-ups and, and pull-ups. And I resent both of those activities. And, and with good reason, I think, because if you've ever seen someone who's good at CrossFit, they're like five foot eight and, and like they've got big chests and short arms. And I don't have either of those things. So, so my pull-up is just a lot longer than most people's of their pull-ups, and my push-up is just farther. So automatically, I felt like it was unfair, but he kept telling me to do these things, and so I got through this workout. Uh, and then he said to me, um, so do you want to stay for the class? And I said, that wasn't the class? <laughs> you, like, you, I thought that was the thing. I thought we were done. Uh, he said, no, that was the warm-up. That's what we do when we warm up. I was like, okay. And I stuck it out for a while, but it never fit me. And yet I recognized in John this longing, not just that I would be welcomed in, but he had this picture of what I might look like, what transformation might look like for me. And he was deeply passionate about it. And even though... I quit, <laughs> and I'm quite glad I quit. I, I, I appreciate that about him too. Transformation is actually, I would suggest, a human desire. It's a human desire. Not, not a church people desire, not, not a Christian desire, although it is, but, but everyone. For, for so many people, there is a longing. How many times have you had that experience where someone maybe points out something about you that's less than ideal, and you say, I already knew it. Uh, I deeply knew it, and I wished it was different, but I, but I don't know how to change. There's all of these expressions about a longing for transformation. This is Louisa May Alcott or Joe Marsh in Little Women. Uh, late at night, my mind would come alive with voices and stories and friends as dear to me as any in the real world. I gave myself up to it, longing for transformation. It's a longing for a different World in Herman Melville's Moby Dick, heaven have mercy on us all, Presbyterians and pagans, for we are all somehow dreadfully cracked 
around the head and sadly need mending. We are all broken people. For all of my 90s friends out there, there was this terrible TV show in the 90s called The Power Rangers. I mean, it's, I tried to watch a bit just for the purpose of the illustration, and it's borderline unwatchable. And yet there's this premise to it that they, they morph, they transform. And they, their phrase is, it's morphing time. And, and, and the word transform is deeply connected to that. The Greek word for transform is, is morphe. And, and so it expresses this longing to be something else. Transformation is a human desire. And it's at the heart of Jesus' good news. It's at the heart of Jesus' good news. When, when Jesus' cousin, John, sends to Jesus to ask, are you the person that we are waiting for? His answer is this. Go back and report to John what you see, hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Those in the margins are pulled inside. This is the good news. It is one that allowed people to encounter Jesus and to, to take a next step, to be transformed. Encounters with Jesus, it seems, always lead to transformation, always lead to next steps. There is always something new. And yet that raises a bunch of questions for me and hopefully for you too, because the question now is, well, what do we mean by encounters with Jesus? Because there's lots of different types of those. What do we mean by transformation? Well, there's lots of different types of transformation, perhaps. You see, on one hand, if you're someone that said, I'm going to follow Jesus, if you made that statement of faith, what the writers within Scripture would say is this, uh, that you've experienced this positional encounter with Jesus. The way it's phrased in one of Paul's letters is, you have moved from a kingdom of darkness, and you have moved to a kingdom of light. And it happened in a moment, and you may not have felt anything, but that's what it says. And so that's something that we might say, okay, what does that mean now for me? What changes? And the risk is, outside of the positional thing, potentially nothing. Potentially, we carry on doing the same things. Potentially, we, we don't actually come to know what it is to live in the way of Jesus, with the heart of Jesus. Now, there could be all sorts of theological questions there, but, but, but we all probably have experienced what it is to, to have, a, have a faith and yet to not particularly change in the way that we maybe hoped that we would. We maybe get stuck. There's this story about a bear in Russia that was in the circus, and for 23 hours a day, this bear was trapped in a cage. And so when it was in the cage, it would just pace up and down, back and forth in its 12-foot cage and it would go from one side to the other side and from one side to the other side and finally some people came along and they freed the bear everything changed the bear was free so they took it to the woods and they placed it in the woods and they wanted to make sure it was okay so they put a tracker on it and then they went back to find it and they found the bear in this huge beautiful clearing in the middle of the woods and yet it was pacing 12 yards one way and 12 yards the other way back and forth and back and forth and back and forth everything had changed for the bear but he didn't know it had changed on the surface, nothing had changed. The cage may have well still been there. So there's this positional change, this positional encounter with Jesus. And, and then there's this liturgical one, which I 
deeply value because I help plan Sunday morning services. And, and so this is what we do when we gather together as people. We maybe make a liturgical statement. We sing songs. We listen to someone speak. We maybe serve together. We do all of these things, and it's deeply valuable and important. And there's moments that that can catch you off guard. C.S. Lewis talks about how one day he was saying the Apostles' Creed and he came to a moment where it said, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And he he must have said it 500, 600 times. And just in that moment, suddenly he said, "I, I believed it for the first time. And I experienced transformation from it. My life was different. And yet maybe there's a third type of encounter. And this is the one that maybe raises the most questions for me and maybe for you too. Because there's also this experiential sense of encounter. You might call it the name-calling encounter. And it's all through scripture, all through the writings that we read. Someone maybe hears God call their name once or twice. Someone has this deep experience something has this someone has this profound moment for for those of you if you're fans of the tv show the chosen they capture this idea perfectly in this mary magdalene story this woman who has a dramatic transformation and and she phrases it like this i was one way and then i was another way and in between in the middle there was him and i don't know how to explain that there's this potential for this kind of transformation that lurks all through scripture. And yet this type of experience or encounter and this type of transformation is the one that I sometimes am suspicious about because I've seen it abused and I've seen people wrestle with it. And maybe you sit in a church community and you're only just about here because you've seen that kind of thing abused too. And it, and it maybe makes us a little bit nervous. We're not sure about that kind of thing. We can handle the positional one because it's distant and spatial. We can handle the liturgical one because it's predictable. And, and what about this one? But it seems that maybe there's something for us there because it seems like so often within the writers of the Bible, this is the type of experience they're talking about. It seems like there's something there that might be waiting. Richard Rohr, the writer, says, mystery isn't something you can't understand. It is something that you can endlessly understand. We're invited deeper and deeper into a mystery. And there's a possibility that we might experience for ourselves in particular ways the God of the universe. Regularly with teachings, I'll have a moment where I'll I'll come up with like a my own personal title for it. And this week I didn't have one until this morning. This morning I went out uh, for a walk as I usually do on Sunday morning. It was just about light and I was walking through some of the green space in Highlands Ranch and suddenly I saw this giant cat across the other side of the, the, the little ravine. I'm talking like huge and I was like, oh my goodness, it's a mountain lion. So, so I did the wrong thing apparently. There was a body of water between me with stepping stones and I was like, I've got to go see this. So I just ran across the stepping stones to try and get as close as I could to this animal. And, and as I got closer, see, I'm not a Colorado kid. Like, I don't know, I don't know what to do when you're faced with these things. And I ran across the stepping stones and, and it was not as big as I first thought. So I'd like seen it. I think this is like seven, eight foot long, but it, it was like four foot, maybe five foot. It was, it was a bobcat. 
but I was just thrilled by having seen this thing. And so I, I, I was still a little nervous because again, not a Colorado kid. I don't know what bobcats can do to you, but I, I chased it into like the road <laughs> and I'm just like, well, what are you doing cat? I just wanted to see and maybe get a picture and it disappeared over a fence. And all I could do in the end was see, was to grab like this distant picture of it. But it was like the size of my oldest daughter. Uh, and yet what I realized in that moment is I was just excited and yet nervous and compelled and wanting to explore. I was captured by this mystery. I was chasing almost a rumor, and, and it was wonderful, exciting, terrifying, all of those things. I wonder if some of that isn't what our story is with the God of the universe. We're chasing something we don't quite understand, and it will at times feel exciting. It will at times feel nervous. And when we talk about this kind of experience, maybe already you're asking, is that type of thing real? Does that happen still? And then maybe is it for me? Because maybe there's all sorts of reasons that you already preclude yourself from that kind of thing and say, no, that can't possibly be my experience. I'm too intellectual. I'm too hurt. I'm too uncertain. I don't have enough faith. All of those different things. Maybe there's a sense that I don't feel right, and maybe I feel broken, I'm not sure I belong. And God might do that with other people, but why, why with me? And then maybe this other one is, and will it be worth the wait? What if God does show up and it's not as exciting or not as good as I imagined it might be? And there's so many other things to do and life is so busy and all of these questions that might circle. The good news is wherever you are, whatever transformation has looked like for you, whatever life with Jesus looks like, here is some good news. Number four, within the writers of scripture, scripture transformation, next steps always follow an encounter with Jesus, never the other way around. Throughout scripture, nobody changes and then encounters God. Everybody who encounters God changes. It never works the other way around. It's never you fixing it. It's never me fixing. It's only ever this way, which creates the possibility that it might happen for people as messed up as you and I. The, the, we're going to turn in a second to uh, Mark chapter 5. So if you have a text you want to turn to it, you can do that. If you're f- unfamiliar with the Bible, Mark is one of the biographers of Jesus. It's the second of those biographies. But before we read this story, I want to read you another passage from Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 14. I want you to just hold this in your mind. For the Lord your God walks about in the middle of your camp, the place you live, the town in modern terms, to deliver you and defeat your enemies for you. Therefore, your camp should be holy so that he does not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. The Jewish people had a very decided idea of who was clean and who was unclean, who could encounter God and who couldn't encounter God. And all of that worked. The who of the question was decided. Some people could and some people couldn't. Central to the three narratives we're about to read is the question of cleanliness and who can find their way into God's 
presence. So here we go, Mark chapter 5, three stories. We find three characters. One is born unclean, one has become unclean, one is clean, or at least thinks he is. These are the three central characters along with Jesus. And in amongst this, I want you to look for similarities in their stories. And I want you also to feel out some of the differences and some of the question with time and the question of when that goes along with that. Because I think you'll find the narratives are both exciting, compelling, if you want to experience God for yourself, but also deeply frustrating in some ways with a bunch of questions to them. Chapter five, verse one, they went across the lake to the region of the Gezerines. The the, the lead that's buried here is that Jesus has just calmed a huge storm, which is a big deal, but they get out of the boat into a foreign land. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day amongst the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself himself with stones. Jesus goes to this foreign land and encounters a person who is in particularly bad shape. And for a Jewish person of the day, the response might be, if you go to those sorts of places, those are the sorts of things that you might encounter. Night and day amongst the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. Legion is a Roman term, about 6,800 soldiers in a Roman legion. So this spirit, whatever that is, says there's many of us. And 6,800 would be a reasonable number. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us amongst the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. How many of you find the story a little uncomfortable? Yeah, there's a little bit with this story, like, what's the deal with that? Like, the pigs, they, they get a really harsh deal in this story. I don't, I don't know if I love that for the pigs, but we get to wrestle with the texts that were given, and the implication seems to be this, uh, that, that in Jesus' understanding, one person and his healing of mind and all of the things that go into the story are more important than the economic value of the pigs, which is huge. The, the town would have lived off the produce of these pigs. This was like all of the livelihood for many of the people in the area. So unsurprisingly, when the people find out there's a little bit of what you might call a ruckus, those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind They were afraid. Fascinating, right? A man has been terrorizing the area. We're told it's because of multiple bad spirits that live within him. No one can deal with this situation, not with chains, not with imprisonment. Nothing fixes the situation. Jesus comes into the situation and does what he does, and then the people are afraid. It seems like somewhere in the story, it's all a little bit backwards. We're kind of like, wait, wait. 
Why? Why are you afraid now? Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. Clearly, this kind of transformation is uncomfortable for lots of people. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. He asks Jesus for something. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. The, the, this, this story with this man is split into kind of two encounters, one where he's not in his right mind, one where he now is in his right mind, and he's been waiting for something to happen for years, perhaps something does happen, and then in his deep longing, he says, Jesus, let me follow you, as many other people did, and Jesus says, no, you aren't to follow me right now. Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell him the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. There is an encounter with Jesus that leads to a transformation and then to next steps and into a preferred future. This man becomes the first missionary, an unclean person by birth because he's not Jewish in the Jewish mindset. He works around pigs, all of those different things. He's now cleansed and in his right mind, Uh, And off he goes. He goes and becomes the first missionary. When Jesus crossed over to the other side, so he's gone from the unclean side, now he's gone back to the clean side, had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake. A large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus, an important position, a lay position, would have looked after the details of the synagogue. He comes to Jesus and he needs something. A person comes to Jesus now with a need who is, at least in his mind, clean. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. Many of the synagogue leaders had a difficult relationship with Jesus. They didn't like him, even though he actually seems like he was able to love his enemies in a classic Jesus-like way. But he has a sense that Jesus can help him in his situation. So even though Jesus is somewhat outcast, Jesus is the one he approaches him approaches and asks for help. A clean man now comes to Jesus and says, I need something from you. So Jesus goes with him. A large crowd followed, pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. An unclean woman enters the scene who also needs something from Jesus. She's been waiting for 12 years. You have an emergency for an important clean religious leader. And in non-emergency, but a long amount of suffering for an for a unclean woman. Possibly there's been some interaction between the two of them. A synagogue leader, Jairus' job would have been de- to determine who was thrown out of the synagogue and who was allowed into the synagogue. And for 12 years, this woman has been in an outcast, an outcast in society. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Instead of getting better, she grew worse. And the text wants you, it seems, to grab like the the sense of the extremes of this. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors. She'd spent all she had. And yet, instead of getting better, she grew worse. And when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed 
from her suffering. Just a touch of Jesus' cloak, it seems, was enough in this moment to change everything for her. At once, Jesus realized the power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask, who touched me? There's almost like a, a humor to it from their perspective. They're like, really, Jesus? There's thousands of people. We try and keep some of them back. We try and can control the crowds. And everybody is touching you. And you want details on who specifically touched you. But, but to Jesus, it's important. Why? Possibly because her healing isn't enough. Possibly because she needs something more from him. Maybe something that she's not even aware of. Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. The implication there is this. She was already freed from her suffering, but now she goes in peace. Now she goes with a particular knowledge that she has been made clean. There's something about her healing that happens that's beyond just physical healing in this moment. She goes in peace and everything about her story has changed. An unclean man encounters Jesus and becomes whole. A unclean woman encounters Jesus and becomes whole. And now there is a clean man who is waiting around for Jesus to pay attention to him. And this has all been to him just a big distraction as you would expect if your daughter was dying. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Jesus can no longer do anything for you. It's over. There was a belief that yes, he could heal, but raise the dead, that's not possible. Jairus has been forced to wait, and that wait has cost him everything, and now there is no hope. Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. Don't be afraid, just believe. One is born unclean and encounters Jesus. One who has, be, has become unclean encounters Jesus. And one is clean and is now left in this difficult situation as a Jewish person. What do you ask of Jesus? What do you ask of this holy man? Do you ask him to come to the house where your dead daughter lies? knowing that the moment he touches her, he too will be unclean? How much does cleanliness and uncleanliness matter in the Jewish story when you're desperate for Jesus to do something? And what can we take away from these stories? What do they have in common? What do they have in common? On one hand, they seem to have in common the fact that the question of who is really, well, Anyone who can encounter God's presence, anyone. The writer Hans Urs von Balthasar says this faith's table is always laid, whether the invited guest sit down or stays away with a thousand excuses and pretexts. Jesus, in this, decidedly answers the question who is welcome into his presence? Who can encounter him? The answer is quite simply it is open to anybody. Contrary to the Jewish belief, it's open to anybody. That is the joy of the text. What's the frustration of the text? Frustration is timing. 
The frustration is timing. Why is one person made to wait while his daughter dies and that's okay? Why is one person made to wait years and then finally transformed in a moment? Why when he asks Jesus for the thing he wants to go with him, does Jesus say no, go and do something else? Why is a woman caused to ask to wait 12 years until Jesus moves into her situation? The difficulty of the text is all of the different ways that timing works. It's the question of when. And Jesus, it seems, knows what each of these people need and what timing makes sense for each of them. And we're just left with that wrestling. We're just left figuring out why. Why this time for this person? Why not this time for this person? Jesus, why in the midst of all of these questions do you not just make it plain? Jesus decisively answers the question of who, but we are left uncertain about when. We're left uncertain about when. The people within the three narratives are asked to wait, sometimes in a way that is greatly inconvenient. Each one has an opportunity to turn away, to give up, to surrender hope. Yet the waiting is not static waiting. It is expectant and active waiting. Each one continues to make themselves present. They wait in the hope they might encounter the divine in Jesus, even if they are unsure what that will look like. They wait even when their hopes appear dashed, and often surprisingly, are offered a preferred future. The story changes dramatically for each character involved. Jairus will see his daughter raised from the dead. The demon-possessed man is whole and in his right mind. The woman with the issue of blood is now welcomed back into society. Some of them waited for a moment. Some of them waited for a decade. Some of them waited for longer. And we're left with that compelling mystery that God will work with anybody and everybody but when he does that doesn't always work to our means doesn't that frustration get to you just a little bit Samuel Beckett in his book Waiting for God expresses this frustration in two of his characters who are waiting for a character to appear, to appear who never appears. His name is Godot, a play on the word God. And, and this is a, a piece of dialogue. Let's go where they never say. We can't. Why not? We're waiting for Godot. Despairingly, the other character says, ah, yes, we are waiting. We are waiting for Godot to appear. And yet he never does. And, and Estrogen, the one of the characters says this, nothing happens, nobody comes, nobody goes. It's awful. Think about any time you've been asked to wait for anything. And waiting is a deeply frustrating experience. You only have to picture a doctor's office, a hospital, any kind of environment where you sit in a room and you see other people chosen when you are not chosen. It's like the classic Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Any Heartbreakers fans out here, you take it on faith, you take it to the heart. The waiting is the hardest part. The waiting is the hardest part. Every single one of those people comes with this desperate need and desperate longing that, that God might step into their situation and they believe that Jesus is that answer to that need. Some of them know what they need. Some of them think they know what they need. Some of them aren't sure and yet every single one of them is asked to wait in different ways. And they wait and they wait and they wait. And isn't that you and I sometimes? Haven't you been in situations where you said, God, if you cared, you would do something now. You would fix this. 
And we get stuck in that question of, it's can he? Can he fix this? Can he do this? And yet what we see overwhelmingly from the writers of scripture is that the can and the who isn't actually the question. It's yes, he can. And it's yes for anybody. But the when? Oh, the when is so much more difficult. When will he do this? When? When? We're asked to wait and we don't know why. And yet somewhere we're asked to trust in that moment. We're asked to take Jesus' response to Jairus in the moment when it seems like there can be no when. In the, in the moment when it seems like the impossible is the only solution. We're simply told, wait. Only believe. Only believe. How do you do that? How do you sit and wait knowing that the God of the universe, it seems, according to this big weight of scripture, can in any moment change the situation? Every single one of these situations touches on the impossible. The man has been in prison too long. The woman has been sick for too long. And, and the daughter isn't just sick, she's now dead. They, they all touch on the impossible. And yet, all the way through the text, the idea is the impossible is actually possible. But still, the timing is just wait. Oh man, that can be so frustrating at times. When will you appear? How will you show up when you do? What does that look like? And it seems like what we're invited to do is this. As a community, we're, we're invited to wait over and over again. And in different ways, we get to watch as the God of the universe will show up in a moment for different members of the community. And instead of resenting it like you do in the doctor's office when your number hasn't yet been called, we're expected to cheer and, and yell and be excited for the person that he does show up for. We're supposed to value him turning up in their situation just as much. Can you imagine Jairus in that moment where Jesus is healing a, a long-standing condition of 12 years and all of the same time he knows, for me it's crisis, for me it's now and it has to be now and it can't be when, it can't be someday that he's left in that situation. And yet Jesus turns to him in this way that, that, he's, that he's difficult to take in the moment of your crisis, only belief. Only believe. There's nothing to believe anymore, Jesus. There's nothing to hope for anymore. Like, wh when isn't a question anymore. And yet, that's Jesus' word to him. And somehow, the dream is for a community that comes together and is genuinely excited when God moves in the lives of other people. That we come to an experience together. And in different ways for each of us, somewhere that is always supposed to be an encounter. Sometimes with liturgy, sometimes steady and normal, sometimes predictable, and just occasionally explosive and dramatic and life-changing. And in those moments, this God of the universe seems to come alongside us in the moment of our dramatic and in the moment of our life change. And in the moment when we've been waiting and waiting and waiting, and in that moment, he seems to come along us regularly and say, and now I have something else. And now I have something else for you. This is the preferred future. Move into it. And what excites me about community is this, is that in any week in this room, God could tell many of us something similar and it might just be predictable and it might just be normal. 
commit to community, find a way to serve, read a text, pray something, any of those things. And then in some weeks, it might be mind-blowing. Somewhere the thing that he tells you might take you far from this place and far from this community that you'll be following what he has for you. Somewhere he might ask you to do something surprising and difficult and challenging. Somewhere he might ask you to do something you don't want to do. Sometimes you'll ask to get in a boat and he'll tell you to go back home. And yet somewhere, what we read over and over again is this God of the universe doesn't just change our position, doesn't just turn up in liturgy, but somewhere on any given moment might call out a name, might speak to us deeply and surprisingly. And in a moment of waiting and waiting of when and when and when, in a moment somewhere, something changes. Let's stand together. We're asked to be a waiting people. Not just an experienced people, but a people who come and create space for the possibility that the God of the universe might show up, that we might encounter him. And he might ask us to take next steps. But with no worth, there is no weight. If you have no worth for this, why would you wait? The word worship comes from an old English word, worth-ship. And somewhere what we're asked to do is to come and to wait and to believe that the God of the universe is worth waiting for. But with no worth, there is no weight. Jesus is a group of people called by your name with all sorts of backgrounds and baggage with all sorts of ways where you haven't done what we wanted or hoped, with all of the anger that comes with that at times, all of the frustration, all of the times that we did the right things, and yet the outcome didn't seem good. All of the ways that we feel like we're clean and we see you move in the lives of unclean people. All of the ways that we have insecurities, feel like we're back of the line. We bring ourselves and we wait. We are awaiting people. In this room, there are some of you that this will just be another Sunday. That's okay. For some of us, there's this possibility that in this moment, the God of the universe might just speak and whisper in our ear just the thing that we need to hear. You are loved. You are valued. You're going to be okay. Here's a new direction to take. Stop doing this. Start doing that. Leave this person. Connect with that person. Start this thing. Hope for that thing. The beauty of it is the mystery. 
and I simply don't know what he might say. But I love that we get to wait and we get to say, God, you are worth waiting for. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks again for listening and have a great rest of your day.